Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes already. This is a Mesh Musings episode where I do a relatively short overview, some might call a few of them rants, on a specific topic related to Data Mesh. I try to put uh, you know my few summary takeaways in the show notes too to make it easy to decide if this will be useful for you. Quick reminder as well to hit the Data Mesh Understanding link in the show notes to easily review listings of past episodes you might have missed, you know, that I've grouped up on different topics to make it easy if you want to do like a deep dive into governance or something like that. Do check out the Data Mesh Understanding offerings as well and the free community introduction and roundtable programs while you're there. Now with that, on to the Mesh Musing. Music isn't just kind of funny. Yes, it is a ska cover of Happy Birthday, which, why does that exist? Anyway, so as the podcast was launched with the first episode in mid-December of 2021, this is a bit more about what we have learned thus far, similar to episode 100, where I looked back at the first 99 episodes. So this is the one-year anniversary. What more have we learned so far? Mesh Musings number 37. I'm going to split this up into pieces because otherwise this could be <laughs> uh, way too long to just listen to me rant for <laughs> 30, 40 plus minutes. So again, talking about what have we learned so far? What have I seen in the last 60 plus episodes since episode 100? I think a big trend that is emerging is people realizing why anyone providing a full blueprint for data mesh should be laughed out of the room. The more I have one-on-one private conversations and share the different approaches I've seen, the more people realize they don't need to get it perfect up front. The more they reflect back on what works in their org and what certainly won't, right? But that's why a blueprint for data mesh is a ridiculous concept. Yes, we can talk about blueprints at the smaller levels for like a data product or maybe aspects of your platform and how other people have looked at that. But thinking something as complicated as data mesh can be satisfied with a blueprint, you know, a copy paste from another organization that covers every aspect really feels foolish at best. The more you really look at it, we can probably get to some big lists of what questions to ask and when, but really You think this is going to be a copy-paste for anyone and that's going to work? I think the more that's really emerging more and more, the more that people reflect back on their own implementations and what they've seen other people talking about. A second theme that is probably a bit more in the feedback and one-on-one conversations is how different the, the community actually feels around data mesh. I'm, I'm proud of that. I, I hope that I've, I've helped to uh, engender some of that. 
It's not all about showcasing perfect solutions, but embracing the flaws. Or maybe quirks is a better <laughs> word that uh, communications departments are more uh, comfortable with. But I feel flaws is, is more apt. All our organizations and implementations have these flaws, these quirks. I probably have something like 20 to 30 messages across different platforms saying somebody's listened to the podcast and they really feel so much better and not far behind everyone else after listening to the podcast. And trust me, no one is as far ahead as everyone seems to think everyone else is. Essentially, everyone is early and it's okay. We still have an issue with a bunch of people trying to polish up what they've done and make it look all shiny and fancy when it's not. It would be much better if comms teams realized that being vulnerable and human gets the better reaction. But, you know, alas. Another big theme that seems to be an undercurrent is taking your time. I mentioned this in the episode 100 look back, but I want to bring it up again. There has always been a huge rush to accomplish everything in data and, and tech in general, often driven by the promise of massive market share now and riches and all this stuff. But it's often really driven by consultants and vendors being the ones typically creating most of the content. So they're saying, buy us and riches shall be yours. While vendors are creating a lot of webinars around data mesh, it doesn't seem to be the majority of the content. At least that makes it in, in front of me. So we are hearing awesome stories from people going at their own pace, right? Again, take your time. Eric Haru at H&M, Kurt Gardner at NIM Group, etc. I regularly talk to people who say they aren't ready to share anything because they are going slow. And, and that honestly frustrates me, not because they are going slow, but because come on and, and talk about taking it slow on the show. That is valuable advice. Don't freaking rush and create unnecessary chaos. I asked Jamak, I don't think this was on, on mic, but I asked her, what's the most common flawed pattern she's seeing? And it's people going too fast. And so we want to think about how we talk about that and that we're not in such a rush. Because <laughs> if you think about, you know, a, a transformation and you think about like a physical transformation from somebody that's trying to get in shape. And if you try and go too fast, you, you pull everything and, <laughs> you know, someone speaking from experience, that's not fun. So think about taking your time and that it's totally okay. So another one Iterative governance is looking more and more crucial, but more and more difficult. And why is it so difficult? So many people try to get governance perfect in one fell swoop. It's not that iterative governance in itself is that hard. It's that we haven't done it. And it's scary. It's a way that people see there's this massive risk when it's much more of a risk of getting it really bad and not doing the right things. If you're not doing that fast feedback, that iterative, you can you can protect yourself from, from risk, but still look to figure out how to do this the right way. You know, so we need to understand what are we trying to do with governance? Inform all the parties that will, you know, we are looking to use for feedback loops. Make sure they're aware of kind of what's going on, that you're not saying this is done and dusted. 
But this just keeps coming up because, again, historically, governance has been about kind of these long periods of planning and going through all these gates and big amounts of work product at once. So figuring out how to do iterative governance right is is going to be difficult in a lot of cases, but so much of it is just the communication. And I know so much of the people out there are very, very sick of of the communication and the socio-technical that so many uh, of the guests that have been on that have been kind of through a data mesh journey, well, are, are nobody's through it, but you know, that are deep into a data mesh journey that they keep saying that, that it is far more about the people than the technology than you even think, even on a day-to-day basis. It feel, the tech is tangible, so everybody wants to do the tech, but yeah. So another one would be we have seen how important the data contracts topic is in the general data community. I don't know if anybody else is on LinkedIn and um, how much data contracts and counter data contracts uh, content there is because people being sick of, of people talking about. But I'd also say how few out there are really getting it right. I've had this conversation where everyone keeps talking about that kind of niggling little thing in the back of your head, in the back of your mind that's saying, what am I missing? What am I missing? I think I'm, uh, part of that is we still don't know exactly how to do this right. But I also think a massive part of data contracts is the communication between the producer and consumer. But yet again, people are trying to apply technology only to places where people and process are most important. I actually think that's the case with data contracts. We know how to do schema contract management, right? That stuff's come from the API side. Go read anything by Gwen Shapira, right? Like there's a lot of great stuff there, but we're trying to automate away conversation. As Jamak points to a a lot, we should be automating away the toil but you can't the conversation. Yes, sometimes conversations feel like toil, but go try to interact with AI. It does a pretty job, a bad job of mimicking real human interaction, right? Like the AI written content in a lot of places seems to say something like, but it never quite does. And I I did actually write that part before that GPT chat or whatever it's called debuted. And it's honestly not as terrible, but Still, you can kind of go, well, I don't know that I can trust this because a lot of times it does just get it wrong. So going back, related to data contracts is, is get freaking specific, please, about data quality definitions. Measurement and defining SLAs around your data quality is so crucial. This is, again, that communication, that that aspect of of telling people exactly what they can expect so they can actually trust it, right? And you can tell somebody that you can't trust this very much. And that actually engenders a lot of trust when you say, hey, this isn't the highest of quality in these kind of metrics, but that they know that it's not. It's so important for trust because people know how much they can actually then trust the things. This will be a future deep dive, I promise. So I won't go too deep into it now, but it's super crucial to let people understand what they are getting. What is the tolerance level on these data quality checks? Or, you know, oh, you as a consumer expected it to be five nines of accuracy and it's only 
two nines? Well, let's have a chat. Why did you think that you needed five nines or why did you expect it to be five nines? Like maybe we do need that thing with uh, five nines, but let's talk about the freshness and that, oh, it doesn't need to be in here within five minutes of it happening in, in, on the operational side. We're going to do it within, you know, 12 hours of it happening. And then we can guarantee that accuracy level without the cost spiraling. Relatedly, just in general, make the implicit explicit. This keeps coming up. Please just do it. Pretty please. So much of the miscommunication around data is that people make assumptions and that just doesn't work well. You know, I, I could go on and on about this, but really putting it out there and saying things you assume the other party knows prevents confusion and miscommunication. It hasn't been a default mode of working or even a non-default but semi-standard way of working. Make it so. Make it so that you are talking about the implicit in an explicit way. Stop making assumptions that the other party knows exactly what's going on. Like This keeps coming up as well of the repetition, right? So many of the people who are talking about pairing with the business well, it's the best way to do that is to constantly be prepared to repeat yourself. That is, again, making the implicit explicit. You are understanding that this isn't the only thing that is going on in their head. Even if it's your main focus, it's not theirs. Having that empathy about what matters to them isn't necessarily what matters to you, but that you can get to co-created value in a great way that's how you want to think about this stuff, at least in my view. So a trend in a lot of the episodes past 100 is kind of what I was just talking about there of just how important pairing with your business counterparties is. It, I think all of us know this in general, but so many people on the episodes are reminding us because it's easy to focus on kind of the data aspects, the technical, the ones and the zeros, the speeds and the feeds, instead of the business decisions and improvements, the data is actually supposed to drive. Engineering types out there, I know you often love to focus on that technical. This is something I think that will come up over and over and over. And it's the reason for that is it's very easy to lose sight of. The only way something like data mesh or honestly, let's be you know, pretty clear, really any data work can be successful is close partnering with the people who leverage the data in some way, because otherwise you're just creating analytical work with no real point. Does that actually drive anything? No. Okay. A really interesting one um, that we've seen some uh, that, that those companies asking domains to produce data products not specific to use cases, are having below expectation consumption. What I mean by that is these companies are going to the domains and saying, you need to share all of your data or all the data that you think people might want to use in a data product, but it's not specific to a a use case. It's not specific to powering a use case. And it's leading to below expectation consumption of those data products. Essentially, if you aren't building to support a use case, at least for your first few data products, we can talk about that kind of phase two, but 
it results in not that many people using the data products. Is that because people don't understand what was built? There isn't the demand expected, etc. Still very much not sure, but it's clear there is some breakdown in the product management process around creating these data products. It's crucial to it's a crucial challenge to solve when talking about going to a second phase of your data mesh where you scale out and create kind of a suite of data products where things might not be very specific to a use case. But if you're just saying domains share all of your data in as high a context way as possible, that's kind of local maximization of context, but not of usability, not of value. And it's it's just an interesting thing that's kind of come up in a fair number of conversations. And speaking of phase two, we are starting to see a number of companies hitting that kind of go wide phase of their implementations. And it's leading to some interesting reflections on their choices that they've made in phase one. Glovo said they wish they did a better job of establishing data ownership in the domains because it's still kind of co-owned or mostly owned by a central data team of these data products and also aligning to working with the data domains, not just the software domains. They didn't do as much of DDD for data as they wish they had. Right. Vista talked about some overlap of work and looking at kind of suites of data products versus individual coverage area of each data product. So, you know, how much white space is there? How much overlap is there? How much does that create cost? How much does that create confusion? You know, how much do you have to map out exactly what you're going to do when? We're still trying to figure that out, right? eDreams was talking about how. They're just now, after having launched, I think they said 200 data products, they're just now getting to BI-focused data products. And so they've gone wide in the kind of general data product type of way, but not ones that are super, super hyper-specific to the business intelligence aspects of a lot of things, right? Kind of more of those use cases versus feeding the data that somebody might actually um, do all the stitching and the, the analytics themselves instead of there being a data product that's kind of about answering specific questions that people have repeatedly. So these are the people everyone wants to ask, how do we do it? How do we do data mesh? But really, everyone should be asking, what advice would you give your former self? What mistakes have you made that you would look to definitely prevent again? So I'm going to take a quick break here and do a little bit more about reflection and then get into some what are we going to look into next as well as some predictions. So hopefully uh, this isn't getting too long for you and that you can enjoy a small musical interlude. Okay, some more reflections here about what have we learned in the last, you know, 60 plus and plus the 100 before that. I do recommend people going back to episode 100, Mesh Musings 22 in general to look at kind of how this has changed as well. Um, 
So another one would be, what does product management and product thinking in general actually mean in data? It's easy to conflate data products with data as a product. That's a fatal flaw in my estimation. Really think on that one, please. There's a big difference between just data products. They're a manifestation of doing data as a product, but there's so much more to product management than the actual product that gets put out. Anywho, so there there have been a lot of hints and been kind of conversations around this, but I really recommend you go and listen to Alla Hale's episode 122, like what are good product practices we have to adopt in data that we can take from outside of software too. We focus too much on the software aspect instead of on general product. You know, uh, Jamak's favorite book is The Design of Everyday Things, which is about creating general products, not software products. So back to being explicit, having super clear communication about what each party is trying to achieve. Hey, we need a data product. Okay, what would having this unlock for you? Great, there's lots of value there. But what exactly do you want us to deliver? Do you just want the data? Or do you want the data and some of the insights? Or do you want the data and the insights and the, okay, so what of it all? Let's get crystal clear on why we're doing the work. What is the actual handoff point? Is it that the consumer expects all the work to be done for them and the producer just expects to hand over some data and all the work to be done by the the consuming party and then nothing ever happens, right? You're just kind of (laughs) sitting on opposite ends because the middle part, the crucial part of actually doing the work, it hasn't been done of the analysis. So get explicit about that. What, What are you actually trying to achieve with this and who's going to do what? Another one, trying to push ownership without understanding or help to the domains is just a non-starter. This comes up more and more in private conversations, but a key component in many successful stories from people early in their journey is the slow adding of capabilities to the domains so they can actually start to own producing their data. How do we transfer data ownership when there is not a one or a zero as to who owns what is a complicated and messy process, but just trying to foist ownership on the domains does not work. The number of times I've had this conversation is probably in the 50s in private conversations as to my domains won't take on ownership. What did you do to make it so they could, that they could be comfortable, that they understood what they actually have to do? To piggyback off that last one, ambiguity and flexibility. If your organization can't deal with ambiguity, you won't do well with data mesh. You need to get yourself into a place where flexibility and ambiguity is okay. I think I can fairly say that full stop. This comes up in so, so, so many of the conversations. If your organization can't handle gray areas and everything must have a hard, rigid line to it, your data mesh implementation is almost certain to fail. If people aren't okay with test, feedback, iterate, that kind of loop, it just won't work. We don't know how to do this well. If if that is your organization and you can't get them there, wait, (laughs) take a break. Don't jump into data mesh now. 
wait for a few more years until there's a lot more clear patterns that have emerged. A big one that I think is, is really important to keep in the back of your head is your first quarter of your implementation will not dictate, at least not too much, what your 20th quarter of your implementation journey looks like. And again, journey is very important, but that you don't have to get it right up front. You obviously want to get off on the right foot, but we're seeing a number of companies not really expect the domains to own uh, data straight out of the gate because they aren't ready. That's really just smart, quite honestly. But five years from now, they should have gotten to a point to enable that domain to own the data. But it's okay to, if you get explicit about when things or what what's coming down the road, people understand what's going to happen. That's okay. You don't have to get it perfect up front. And again, that test and iterate and feed, that feedback loop is so crucial. And that's at the micro and the, the very macro level. Don't even get me started on governance, right? I already have my next few mesh musings planned out, but I will do a series specifically of those on governance. We've had five episodes with governance in the title in the last 60 episodes. There's one coming up soon with Andrew Sharp from the Oakland Group, all about governance as well. So we are starting to figure out governance and data mesh, but man, iterative governance is scary. You need to be extremely good at communication and trust to deal with that ambiguity. And we also need to talk about what's valuable to do now versus later. Schmack talks about where we need to get to with APIs and how governance has worked for APIs on the operational plane, but we're nowhere near that right now. So spending all your time trying to do automated access control and all that stuff, is that a value? No, <laughs> I can almost say certainly full stop, no. There, there are certain aspects where you should have automated access control, where it's non-sensitive data and, and things like that. But so much of the use case is what drives whether somebody should get access or not. Um, there are three kind of emergent debates or major choices I see early in a data mesh journey. Who should be your data product developers? Uh, how do you think about exposing source-aligned data products? and how to hand over data ownership. You will see more on these in the future. I think they just keep coming up as, as little undercurrents, that, but I didn't want to do a whole big thing on those. Um, I have done a bunch of episodes on, on ownership where I've done two mesh musings, and I've got like two or three more that are planned in the next 100 episodes. So uh, you know, I could do full episodes on all of these, and I probably will. But I think we can have a healthy discussion and people will decide different paths and that's okay. I don't think we want anyone, again, the blueprint aspect is just silly. There are a lot of additional things that I've learned over the last 60 plus episodes since episode 100 and especially in my first year of doing this, you know, hitting 100 plus or 160 plus episodes in a year is kind of crazy. Um, I might be slowing down a little bit in, in 2023. We'll see, um, especially as I, I start my own thing and, and help uh, companies that are actually implementing. But I think this will be good for now. I'm going to cut myself off because there's still the um, predictions, which uh, is, is decently sized as well as what I plan to get into further. But what I'll say here is 
If there's additional things you want me to reflect on, get in touch. The things that drive the content I create is the conversations I have. So if there's something that you're struggling with, have a conversation with me. I will dig into it. I know this sounds like crazy talk, but like otherwise I'm talking into the void. So if you have something that you really want me to dig into, you got to let me know about it. Be the voice that that's going to drive my content as well going forward. So again, uh, we'll do a quick music interlude and then we'll get into some other aspects. We'll get into what I'm planning on getting into for the next, you know, year of episodes and then uh, get into some of my crazy predictions at the end. So after that long bit around the ex- the predictions aspect, what am I likely to explore in year two? Long list of a bunch of different things, and I'm probably not going to cover everything that I will. You'll probably even see that <laughs> very quickly. I, I just reached out to somebody today about data sovereignty, and it's not even on my list here. So measuring the value or at least the target business impact of data work. You're going to hear an episode coming up re- or in, in a couple of weeks about that with Pink Shoe at Vista. And I think it's something that we really, really need to dig into much better than we have been. Knowledge graphs at a deeper level. Are they really the interoperability key for data mesh? Or are they one of many options to do interoperability well? I know the proponents of them seem to say, this is the only way that we can do it, but I don't know, because then why aren't more people doing it? Ontologies and taxonomies, you know, Jamak has talked about anything rigid and central is going to create bottlenecks when we scale. So can we do like flexible, scalable, you know, changeable ontologies and taxonomies how can how can we move away from rigid frameworks of this is the only way to uh tag this and label this but i just i'm not sure that we're there yet consumer user experience you know the data consumer user experience how can we have that positive ux at the data product level and overall mesh level for consumers there's going to be a panel on this uh, i can't remember exactly when this comes out. So it might've already happened, but there's a panel around even just data user experience in general. The exec user experience in data mesh. When we think about who are we creating this data for, for doing all this analysis, at the end of the day, is it the executives? I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's the decision makers and they're the ones who really make the decisions. So they need to be the ones that are the most informed in some way or fashion, right? That information flow to them can happen in a lot of different ways, but we're creating a lot of this for them to make the right decisions. As many have said, execs really have a question as well that pertains to a single domain. So 
we have to satisfy them to get more funding. And they are the ones that are using this for driving key decisions, or that's kind of the point of, of being data-driven, data-informed. So like, what is that? I don't know. What, what's that aspect of it? I think something that ties into that a lot of people have talked about what's the role of the chief data officer or the kind of lead person on data. And Jamak has said that she kind of believes that a couple of years, five years or whatever into a journey, will there really be a need for a chief data officer? She doesn't think as much that there will be. I think that the chief data officer will become maybe the second most important role in a company. And why that will be is they're the ones that are working with teams to tee up collecting and creating the the data and the analysis to answer the strategic questions, not when they are simply asked, but pairing with these execs. And so they become kind of the chief strategy via data officer. And that that will be the thing. And there will always be, in my mind, a centralized team. So I, I don't want to dig into it anymore, but yeah. So another one will be that I, kind of tying to one thing I, measure, I talked about earlier, but measuring and communicating the value of data work. How can we put it in the language of business without having to justify every aspect of data work? I think this will be especially important in a down, downturn. Data literacy in data mesh. Yeah, we talk about data literacy and culture and blah, blah, blah. But what does it really mean to upskill people? Are they all citizen data scientists? Like what? what's good enough? How do we get there? How do we make sure that we're not just trying to hire or, or ex, you know, do external work for our data mesh? How do we really get to the right mix of that? How, how do we grow and you know, what's got us, what's got us here won't get us there. But like, what are the things where I don't have to train everybody for six months on how to do data? Well, they're not doing the work. One people that, uh, one that a lot of people are yelling about would be um, data modeling in, in data mesh. You know, is it just use data vault or anything like that? I, I think we'll see, um, more of around that emerge. There's a panel that's going to be happening relatively soon about this. I, I think we'll start to get to better answers, but I think we have to make some changes, right? Much, much more on data governance in general. We've had a lot of episodes, but it's still a massive and hazy topic. Interoperability, right? I want to dive into this because I am still massively confused on what interoperability really means. When we start talking about it, a lot of times it's just foreign keys and that things mean somewhat the same between this and this from a foreign key perspective, right? Is it really that hard? Is it really, or in this case, I mean, that simple? I feel like there is just a massive underlying topic here, and it probably ties into that ontologies and taxonomies conversation. I just feel like it hasn't been tapped yet. The important of explicit measurement of data quality. This one just hasn't been covered enough for me. It's part of the data contracts conversation, but when we're getting kind of in general, really when we're communicating and how much can someone trust the data, you have to get explicit about the actual, like what 
<laughs> how much can you trust this? What are the data quality metrics? What is I'm going to see literally in in no uncertain terms an ability to measure how much I can trust this data. And to piggyback off that one, in general, making the implicit much more explicit. How the heck do we effectively communicate with each other? Setting clear expectations. More on communication, but what are we actually trying to do and why? Right? I think a lot of times we get lost in the work instead of the why. Data ethics in general. I did a Mesh Musings and I did an episode with Esther Tam on this, but that's going to come out in, in a while. But it's not just bias here, folks. We need to get our thoughts in order around what data ethics should be. How do we how do we make that instead of just trying to maximize the every single cent out of our data, that we do have some ethical use parameters around that? Because people don't like to work on icky things and stuff like that, but it hasn't really been that well plumbed as a topic. Scalable data access. Jamak talks about her vision like we can do with what API access does. But data has nuance. Many are finding the fast access granting to data is good enough. Will that keep people satisfied or do we have to have that programmatic automated access? To me, I just think, I mean, hopefully we can get there, but I think we're 10 years away. I don't think we're two years away. I think we're 10 years away on that. I think there are more value-add problems to solve if you can get the access granting thing done quickly. But again, uh, we'll dive into that. Probably more tooling-specific things. Look for a specific set of deep dives in some way that I'm going to do, especially once I move to Europe and things like that. But um, I think we need to start to provide um, a non-salesy, non-vendor-driven way to look at what is out there and that people can kind of an objective way of looking at it. When to do change management at the micro and macro level in data mesh and that, you know, you can't do it all up front, but you can't wait for everything at the end. Like, how are you measuring how that is? You look at kind of agile practices and all of that. Now, this could really be an hour long about what I'm going to probably try and dip into in year two. So I, but I also need to hear from you on what are your biggest challenges? What do you actually want me to go ahead and look into? Because if I don't have that, then I'm going to do whatever I want. Or someone who's loud, the, if only one person tells me this is the, the biggest topic, then I'm probably going to listen to them far more than if I get five or six or 10 or whatever people saying, this is my challenge. This is what I don't understand. Or this is where... I am trying and it is not going well. And you can tell me that in, in private, but like, that's, that's the big thing. That's what I need.
Okay, so predictions. Let's talk about my 2022 predictions before we get to the 2023. I'd say I was 1.25 out of three. I nailed the thing about data contracts, whiffed badly on data-driven application development, and was a bit, but not very right about knowledge graphs. See if I could do better in 2023. So like I said, I called data contracts as one of the biggest topics for the year early in 2022. I also thought the data-driven application development would be much bigger and that knowledge graphs would be taking the world by storm. The data-driven application development, I'm much more down on. It just doesn't seem feasible to have to retrain every application developer to start from data first. There isn't a good way to iterate towards it and breaking changes to ways of working are, are not great. I didn't really know that was necessary before saying it would win. Hopefully, I'm not doing the same here in a bit. Um, but I'll give a quick analogy. I, when I was working as a VC, I we invested in a company called Zigo, and they had this amazing, amazing piece of technology. But you needed to intersect with them when they were coming up, at least with a new rack of servers, but often with a new data center when they were building out a new data center. I feel like that's the same thing with kind of data-driven application development. It's really, really hard to move into it, um, and that's why I think. With data mesh, when people try to, to do too much too fast, it's kind of the same uh, problems, challenge sets. So um, knowledge graphs, they, they keep popping up everywhere, but I feel like I have yet to see anyone other than the kind of existing lovers of knowledge graphs that I knew about talking about them more than, you know, something like, I feel like we need to understand knowledge graphs. So it feels like there is still something there and a dam is going to burst at some point, but probably not even in 2023, maybe late 2023. Anyway, so my my big predictions for 2023, I have uh, four big ones and then some smaller ones. So these are mostly tied to data mesh or at least, you know, things around data mesh because I'm not really focused on, uh, you know, making uh, predictions about other things that just don't really come across my, my plate. So number one, first, we will see emergent blueprints and open standards slash frameworks for data products. I've pushed hard for many companies to share exactly what their internal definition of a data product is, because it means different things to different people, and to share some of their kind of internal standards around, hey, how are you storing this? Or how are you looking at this from an interoperability standpoint? Really, the only one that I've seen that's done this in, in a feasible way has been Agile Lab. They've put out um, something interesting. So thank you, Paulo and team. But we need more of these easy starting molds, not you know pure easy buttons of boom, I click this and I get a data product, because that's just not going to be applicable. If you are looking to do that lazy of a way, go elsewhere. Your data mesh is just not going to work for you if you're looking for that much of an easy button. But what we will see is there will be a lot more examples of actual data products, maybe with dummy data, that organizations will show. And then the vendors that they haven't figured this out yet to do this as part of their product demo still baffles me because it's just like, hey, you want to show how data mesh could work and how you can work inside data mesh? Okay, create 10 of these small little dummy data products and how they're interoperable and how your, your product works inside of that kind of platform. But alas, anyway. So second prediction is that we will see the early emergence of 
much better frameworks to measure the business impact of data work. Now, somebody tried to talk to me about Infonomics, and it's like, the the more that I've seen on that, the more it's like, we should do this, and then there's nothing there, right? It's it's There's nothing really behind it. So there's a really... There's an upcoming episode with Pink Shu from Vista about their um, impact measurement framework for, for incremental data products. And I think their framework is really awesome. From what I'm seeing on this topic in general, most people try to wrap too much into one measurement, making it a mass and thus a morass of half-baked qualitative measurements masking as quantitative measurements. So what I think we'll see is better thought around this and it will go actually more mainstream with better ways to measure and thus prove the value of data work. And because of the impending global economic slump, downturn, recession, whatever you want to call it, we will need to prove the value of data work more, right? There's going to be a lot of companies that are like, why don't we just cut the, the data thing? You know, it's it's kind of like the recruiting and things like that. A lot of times, the uh, sillier companies, the ones that aren't quite as strategic around their data, will say, let's just cut this data work. But I think what we will see from these frameworks is it will be far more nuanced than I saw an article that got like a ton of likes on LinkedIn saying, your return on an investment for a data product is the positive impact of the data product divided by the cost of the data product. We need to get a little more in depth, please. But I think we will start to see more Kind of, you know, it's it's funny because uh, Jamak is pushing us to to stop trying to uh, break everything into layers. But I think when you think about, you know, even the networking model, you think about OSI. There's like a base layer and a layer on top of that, and layer on top of that, and they all cohesively interact with each other, and they're all part of one kind of packet of information. When you think about how packets actually get sent, and it's just about kind of passing the information back and forth. I think we'll have that from a measurement framework where we say, hey, here's the base thing that you measure. Here's the thing on top of it. Here's the thing on top of it. And so that you've got that support instead of just trying to mix everything together. And then you just go, well, we know data work is important. So just stop harassing us about it. I think we'll get to a much better place with that. Number three is we will finally start to see some people get past the idea that data product thinking is only about creating data products. This has been one of my biggest bugaboo topics where sometimes I go a bit overboard and or do the whole Mugato from Zoolander thing of, am I taking crazy pills here? Right. Looking at product management practices, it's not only about the actual product that is in general the end manifestation. The interface that is used to interact with the customer is the actual product itself. But think of even like something simple, like a box of mac and cheese. There's a ton of market research and feedback and interviews that go into it. It, you know, testing all these different things. It, it's not just the mac and the cheese. It's the packaging and the marketing and all of that. And maybe there was a special edition Mac and cheese or something like that. Bad analogy, but let's, let's right now I'm kind of upset because on the ice cream front, I only got one pint of uh, pumpkin pie ice cream before they took it off the shelves. And this might honestly be my last year to even get it. I don't know. Does the Netherlands do pumpkin pie ice cream? Anywho, they only bring out that pumpkin pie ice cream for a bit every year. So thinking about product pruning as well and like how like 
Should we have this thing all the time? Is this a one-time run of information? Or how do you think about how things evolve, right? Measuring feedback and taking that actually into account of what to create or augment in your data product, what to shut down, what data products aren't being used or what aren't being used. I think um, Pink talks about this a lot. What was the point of creating the data product? Is it serving that, right? If it's no longer serving that, it may have been great. Um, uh, Sean, or Shane Gibson at uh, Agile uh, Data was talking about this as well of um, when you think about agile practices, something may have worked for you phenomenally in the past and it's no longer working. So you move away from it and that's okay. We need to think about that in data instead of just having these things that sit out there in perpetuity. So, you know, when we think about actually creating a, a product. Your platform is a product. Your interface to your users is a product, et cetera. The idea of product thinking as applied to data will move from create data products to how do we serve our customers in such a way that is it is sustainable and scalable in a productized way. At least I hope for my sanity that this one happens in 2023. Finally, my fourth big prediction is that we'll start to see some big data mesh failure stories emerge. And almost all of them, I will bet, will be because someone focused overly much on the tooling and or tried to move too fast. There will probably be a fair few of stories where people are no longer doing data mesh as well, where there was a change in leadership or and or the economy caused people to rein in investments. But I don't see those as much of as a failure of doing data mesh as a stall or shift in the tactics, right? We didn't end up doing, you know, continuing forward with our data mesh implementation versus it, it didn't work at all for us. Is that semantics? I don't know. Anyway, I love a figure someone posted on LinkedIn recently of what a digital, digital transformation really is. Picture was of uh, you know the caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly, but what most people seem to think is digital or data transformation or whatever is a caterpillar, and then step two is you add a skateboard so it can move a little bit quicker, and then step three you add a jetpack. You know, just pushing forward with ways that are not working for us in general at best is probably not going to work. So when they do start to emerge, let's lean into these failure stories and figure out what we can learn from them. Let's not criticize or deride. Let's ask nice and intelligent questions of these people. If someone is going to be vulnerable in sharing what they went wrong, why in the world are you going for the jugular instead of the hug euler? Too cheesy? Eh, I don't care. Either way, if all we hear are the good parts about data mesh, all of you out there experiencing the tough aspects of data mesh are going to feel like you are way behind. And you aren't. Maybe this is just some wishful thinking, but I think we are going to start to tease the bad and the ugly stories out. Not just the good, not just the companies that are going out and saying, we got it all figured out. You know, I, I really, really love um, the interview with the Orpheum folks because they said like, we tried a bunch of this stuff and it just, it didn't work. And so we got to a good place, but like the, you, you don't have to do this to get to value. And, and I think we need more of that. We need people being honest instead of trying to come and, and market. And I, I have this problem sometimes with comms departments. And that's why people come on and say, I'm not representing my company because the comms department wants them to say, 
we're the best in the world versus like, let's be honest. Let's have an honest conversation and start an honest, honest, you know, honest back and forth. So I think we'll start to see more of those. And part of this thing of getting data mesh right is try, test, and iterate. And part of that is getting it wrong. So when we think about that at a community scale, that's of massive value, right? To hear of what did people try and test and it didn't work and and were they able to iterate or, or did they lose the momentum? Let's make sure we work with them to enable them to be able to tell their stories. So some not so big pr- uh, predictions for 2023. Number one, knowledge graphs will continue to g- gain interest momentum, but little larger scale or high profile implementation men- momentum. Few people are really sharing what the massive value of using a knowledge graph brought to their organization that I've seen, right? There's kind of the knowledge graph uh, group, and then there's the non-knowledge graph people. And we need them to be integrating into much more of the conversations out there and going out and talking in all these different spaces and getting people's interest. But I don't think that will happen in 2023. We need someone that is pulling out that information explicitly to share with data leaders before it goes wide. That's kind of the goal of what I'm doing with this podcast for Data Mesh is pulling out this information and making it kind of easier for folks, but also seeding out a lot of the people that I have on the podcast to other podcasts, other mediums, other panels and meetups and things like that. We need more of that for for something like that to go wide with knowledge graphs. Number two, we'll start to see some kind of emergent schemas for sharing insights across organizations. I think uh, Mojgan Tavakolifard <laughs> did a great job to point out that sharing data in an exchange is fraught with risk. So we will probably be sharing the insights from the data, not the raw data. This will not be a solved problem by any means in 2023, but we will see some basic schemas and other ways of sharing emerge and get some adoption traction. Number three, smart contracts will see a massive uptick in interest with little to no follow through. Sound and fury signifying crypto slash web three bros trying to pivot their hammers and make data exchange their next nail. There will probably be a splashy investment or two as crypto VCs look for a new place to put their money, and then it all dies down. Number four, we will see a lot of open source software projects start to emerge that are specifically data mesh relevant. Maybe this is wishful thinking, but I don't think we will get as many companies starting to emerge uh, you know, new companies starting to emerge that are doing these types of, of tech, given VCs are starting to clam up more and more on funding, right? They're kind of hunkering down in a lot of ways. So we will see the projects emerging from all of you folks listening that are at these companies. Hopefully, you know, the Data Mesh Learning uh, Foundation, as I pass over all that stuff to them, will have some kind of funding or project management mechanism but we need to find some projects to work with first. But the prediction here is that there will be a few things more directly targeted at solving issues in a data mesh way that come out into the open source space. Number five, data mesh will continue to be derided by tech-first focused practitioners and will all, as a community, keep on trucking. Seeing it constantly by a number of the data engineering influencers 
not all of them, obviously, you know, uh, kind of the, the biggest one, Tobias Macy has had Jamak on two, three times to talk data mesh. But a lot of these folks that are really, really focused at the tech level keep not understanding what we're actually trying to do. Number six, more data mesh vendor washing, but that the kind of, we'll see more of the sharper vendors uh, will also realize it hurts instead of helps credibility. It will be those vendors that aren't very agile and adept that will do it the wrong way and will double down on doing it the wrong way. But we'll get more people focused on, more vendors focused on extracting information instead of selling their product. There's a couple of companies that are doing that well. Um, I won't do that because I know certain, uh, I won't mention any right now because I know certain uh, other companies get really frustrated when I say, hey, this company is actually doing it the right way. You can probably guess because they're the ones that I'm, I'm more friendly with. <laughs> Number seven, three to five data mesh focused content channels will emerge. New channels. Of course, there's the data mesh learning meetup and newsletter and this podcast, but I think we will see others start to dip their toe in the water and it's warm. Come on in. I would love someone else to be doing a good data mesh, you know, focused podcast or other content so I can focus on, you know, extracting more information in a different way. If I don't have to keep putting this stuff out, awesome, right? <laughs> if somebody else can take over certain aspects of it, then I don't feel like I'm the only one that's kind of constantly churning out this, this new information. And finally, number eight, we will start to see more innovation around data modeling in data mesh. Instead of just trying to apply existing paradigms, we will start to see the inklings of new ways of working. They will not take the world by so storm. There is too much entrenched for that to come quickly. But we will start to move past the answer of just use Data Vault or Data Vault 2.0 or whatever. And we'll start to have people actually try to create a new way of doing this work instead of just saying, can't we just use what we've already got? Because what we've already got isn't getting, you know, the whole what's got us here won't get us there. I think the more that we dig into that, the more we find that with our current ways of data modeling. So I think we need to maybe not go completely back to the you know square one drawing board, but I think we need to be um, a little more cognizant that we can't just do what we've always been doing. So those are my predictions. Feel free to make fun of them as much as possible. Feel free to uh, throw me under the bus in any way you'd like. But I think um, I think we'll see some interesting movement forward. And I think if we can continue to have open discussions and open conversations, we'll see a lot of good progress in figuring out how the heck do we do something like decentralized, you know, data right at scale. So uh, if you've got any questions, as always, feel free to ping me. So with that, um, hopefully this has been, you know, a very long, but hopefully this has been a useful general Mesh Musings episode and kind of a reflection back on the first year. Hopefully that was a useful Mesh Musing for you. Please do rate and review the podcast. It really does help. And if you'd like to get in touch and see how I can be helpful to you, check out the show notes. I'm pretty easy to find. As I mentioned, there are some great free programs in addition to some very affordable things round implementer intros and roundtables on the Data Mesh Understanding website. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch. 
Have a wonderful rest of your day. And with that, now on to the funky outro music. Thank you.